0: You're listening to Ritual, a podcast for curious humans, all about creative practices, mindset, and professional improvement. I'm your host, Daniel Lamb, CEO of Holland Creative. Welcome to the podcast. Glad you're here today, man. Hey, man. Thanks for having me, Daniel. I appreciate you. Awesome. I will now read your biography for our listeners. Prepare yourself. This is a great bio, by the way. Conceived beneath a tilt-a-whirl in Roswell, New Mexico, Brian Panowich is the latest in a long line of conmen, cult leaders, sea captains, unwilling raconteurs, and caviar taste makers on dime store budgets. He also wrote a few books and won a few awards. Sounds like it was written by a writer. <laughs> okay, Brian. So let's dive into this. First of all, we you get my flagship question. What is your ritual? Oh, man.
1: You know, I just got to say that there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. I just want to dance in my goat skin pants around these ancient ruins. Daniel, that's my ritual. <laughs> That's actually, that's actually not my ritual, but I listen to that from the dragnet film and uh, that's what kickstarts my day every day. Cause it makes me laugh. And then I go from there. Do you want more? Do you want like reality?
0: <laughs> I do. I kind of do want reality, but we can. Um... <laughs> okay.
1: All right, man. My ritual, man, my ritual is to make sure I get up every morning and I make my bed. That's the thing. I work from home and home is my office and I write from here. So the first thing that I do when I get up is I make my bed because somebody told me one time that if you accomplish something very small immediately at the beginning of your day, then the rest of your goals or at least whatever you're setting out to accomplish, you'll feel better about doing. And I have come to find out that that's the truth. Make your bed. And then all of a sudden it feels like you've accomplished at least one thing, one goal, and then you just move on from there. And so I get up every morning, I make my bed, I feed my kids, I take them to school, I come home, and I'm Brian the writer at my desk in front of a made bed, and till they get out of school. Then I go pick them up, and I bring them home, and uh, then I'm Brian, the dad, for the rest of the day, and I try to spend as much time with them as possible. We've got a really cool family dynamic here. And then um, once they go off about their business, I go back to being Brian, the writer, again. And that's normally when I get my shit done is like second go around. And then I have this thing called insomnia where I end up writing normally until the sun comes up or I will be doing, working on whatever product I'm working on. And that's usually when I crash out for those four or five hours and the whole thing starts again with that bed being made.
0: Wow. That's, um, that's intense, but I have to agree with you. There's something about a made bed that sets the mind, right? It, you wouldn't it seems think to, so
1: though. something so yeah. casual and, and off the cuff. It makes a difference, man.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It definitely helps me arrange my mental furniture in the morning.
1: Oh my God. I'm going to yeah. steal that Daniel. That's a, yeah. that's a, that's a great quote.
0: <laughs> Please do. I don't remember where I heard that first. I think it was, it might've been somebody talking about psychedelics as a way to rearrange your mental furniture. That was probably you it. No, um,
1: because you were super high. So, I mean, <laughs> to right?
0: say I, I can neither confirm nor deny the state of which at which I heard that.
1: We're, we're adults. We can talk about it,
0: man. It's we, true. <laughs> I probably was high or experiencing some sort of otherworldly consciousness. Yeah. That reminds me of being in Athens, Georgia and my first experience with mushrooms. But that's another story for another time.
1: Man, searching for mushrooms is one of the f- most, I don't know, self-pleasing things ever, man. It's just a, <laughs> the, the whole, that ritual in itself, I think is better than the actual consumption of them, man, is is seeking them out at night and digging through shit. It's such a, I don't know, it's so satisfying. You know, it's like clicking open a f- nice. Pocket knife, man, with a flick of the wrist—it's that thing, those little things that satisfy you. You know, that's one of them. It's a strong. I remember doing that when I was a kid, thinking, "Man, this is fucking fantastic." And then (laughs) (laughs) it was better than it was better than the actual like going back and preparing the tea and all that bullshit. But.
0: Anyway. Yeah. I think my experience with it was my ritual was hunting through my phone for a number to find somebody to <laughs> call and say, Hey, do you have any chocolates? Um,
1: <laughs> well, man, I, I guess that just goes to show, man, I'm, I'm homegrown as fuck.
0: <laughs> you know, I grew up across the street from a dairy and I never knew that until I moved away that that was how one could come across, uh, psychedelic mushrooms you know if i could go back in time and tell my younger self that you've got a gold mine across the street from your house i probably would have told him about it
1: um, well i guess if i would have had the number in my phone then i would have called it but i didn't so i had to make use of what i could and i had a pastor across the street so here we have it
0: so let's talk um let's talk about writing man and creativity here's how i came to know you before you knew that i knew you my our friend benji carr gave me a copy of bull mountain he said, Daniel, you got to read this book. It's really good. And I said, okay. And I took it from him and I sat it on my desk and it sat there for about a year. And I finally read it and it, it was a damn good book. I wasn't expecting the depth in there. And I wasn't, I just, when someone just hands you a book and it's like, hey, my friend wrote this book, you're like, okay, whatever. But sometimes you get really caught off guard by something that's really fucking awesome. So this was one of those situations. And so for the listeners who don't already know you, when you'd gotten to the point of writing Bull Mountain, how long had you been writing and where were you at in your journey as a writer when, you know, this thing got picked up?
1: Yeah, I guess it depends on how you define writer because um, I'm what I like to refer to, and I've said this before, as the accidental novelist. I had never... In my adult years thought that I would ever write a novel. It was never a goal of mine. And a lot of people are taken back by this because I'm the, what I also call like the 20 year Cinderella story right out of high school and into college. And by the way, Benji Carr, you just mentioned Benji's a fantastic writer right out of Atlanta and he is a, he's got a book called Impact coming out and impacted is something you ever I think everybody's gonna love. It comes out in May, it's brilliant. So check that out, Benji Carr. But anyway, I uh right out of college I wanted to I wanted to play guitar and make music. I ended up going out and doing that for almost fifteen years and I was quasi successful at it. My band had done well when we toured the southeast and it got the bills paid and I lived up right pretty well off of it. But I wrote my own songs. So I've been writing for I don't know what for decades but I was writing songs mostly. I would jot down notes and stuff and always thought of cool ideas for short stories, but those short stories usually ended up being characters in songs. I'm a huge Springsteen fan, and so people, uh, they listen to his tunes, and like Dire Straits, there's lots of characters and stories in those songs, you know, and it's not just existential lyrics. So I actually told stories in my songwriting, and then when my first daughter was born in 2004, I'd Came off the road, and I stopped doing that and was home full-time as a father, became fireman. And then, um, I don't know, I, it, something was lacking, you know, not having that outlet anymore. I'd play my guitar every now and then, and I'd, re- I'd still write songs. But I knew that my career as a musician had come to a screeching halt because I wanted to be home with my kid. So at the firehouse, I just started dicking around with, with, sh- with short stories, and I didn't really know what I was doing. Daniel. I mean, I was just more like keeping journal. And then a buddy of mine at the firehouse, uh, he turned me on to a, a website that he liked to go to when we on were on downtime called a uh, dot And it was flash fiction stories. And for anybody out there who doesn't know what flash fiction is, it's like bite-sized nugget stories, man. It's about 800 words. you set the scene, you tell a story and it's, it's really fucking hard to do to tell an entire story in 800 words. It takes five minutes to read, but uh, I got addicted to that shit. I loved it. I was reading all these fantastic writers, man, that were just publishing these stories. And, and so I started doing that and it, build the gap. I was writing these little bite-sized stories, and and I got... I remember the first time I sent one in to one of these online publishers. It was Shy Gun Honey, actually, and they accepted it, man. I mean, it was a big deal. No money, no nothing. It just was a story I wrote. It was online for a week, and it was pretty fucking cool. And uh that was my... That was the entirety of my uh I guess aspiration to be a writer. Like I had found something I liked to do and I was alongside all these other guys that I was reading that were fantastic got women like Jen Connolly, Ryan Sales and Chris Leak, and Chuck Reagan, and these brilliant writers. One of my stories got nominated for a, for an award. It was called the Spine Tingler Award. I had come to find out that was just some dude in his basement like who ran a website and so it was <laughs> really like, a fucking deal. Nice. And, uh, but at the time I was like, hey man, it's a major award, you know? So and um and I lost. I lost. My my story did not win. Ken Bruin's story won and If you know who Ken Bruin is, man, if you're going to lose, man, lose to a joker like that, a fantastic Irish crime writer. Anyway, I want to say it was about two or three months later, an agent in New York had read that short story that lost because they follow that kind of shit. They're looking for talent. And so they're looking at all these websites and they saw that. And he, so he read the four stories that were nominated and mine was one of them. And he got in touch with that person, got him in touch with the guy at shotgun honey. And he ended up putting, getting him in touch with me. So this Big deal, like super powerful literary agent just came out of the blue and said, Hey, I read your short story and it was fantastic. Have you ever thought about writing a novel? And I was like, absolutely not. You know, I thought the, I, I first Daniel, I thought the guy was like the fucking prince of Nigeria, you know, he, he his- <laughs> you know? I was yes. like, I was like, this is bullshit, right? He told me, he said, you know, go, go look me up. And then when, he, if you ever write a novel, give me first crack at it. So I did, I looked him up and he's, like I said, he turned out to be a pretty, pretty legit agent. He was Wiley Cash's agent and Tom Franklin's agent and James Elroy's agent for Christ's sake. And I was like, God damn, man, this dude's a big deal. He discovered Daniel Woodrell, which really sent me over the top. So I had to go out and sit in the garage for a minute, man, think, holy shit, maybe I can do this. So every third day, I was like, by that time I had my second daughter and so I had Tally and Ivy, and I was full-time dad in it, but at the firehouse in the downtime, since I'm a rural firefighter, we have a lot of downtime, wrote Bull Mountain, like in a closet at the firehouse, and I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I, I mean, I didn't even think it would be understandable the way I, I structured the novel. The novel comes from like 15 or 16 points of view from different characters, and it skips back and forth in time, and I had zero idea how to write a book. Three-act conflict and journey and all that bullshit anyway i sent it to the guy and he called me immediately and said hey i want to take you on as an agent i would like to uh, represent your book and six months later he sold it to the biggest fucking publisher in the world and um my life was forever changed like i was oh my god now i'm a writer and that book blew up and won awards and had me flying all over the you know country, torn behind it, and I was in New York and at black tie events, like hanging out with CJ Box. And I mean, like seriously, like six months earlier, I was fighting fire and coming home and cooking chicken wings. So I mean, it was fucking nuts what happened to me, man. You know. And then, but when I tell that story, a lot of people will be like, "Wow, man, that doesn't happen to anybody, man." It's like completely Cinderella. Yeah, it is. But I was out there putting out songs for 15 years. And then I did spend a year putting stories online. So, I mean, I was always constantly grinding out something to latch onto. And then eventually somebody did. Somebody latched onto it. Changed my life.
0: That's really awesome. I, I've never heard this the called the Cinderella thing, but I have heard 10 year or 20 year overnight success. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, yeah, exactly which, right. You know, oh my goodness. There's a metaphor that I came across not too long ago that really describes the the process in a really beautiful way. But I think it's kind of like planting. I think that's the metaphor, right? Before you ever see a sprout come up in the ground, there's a lot happening that you can't see. And I think that's for those of us who seemingly find success quickly, it's not really that quick. And it takes a lot of cultivation. Over
1: like, yeah tonight. i love i think that's a fantastic metaphor man that's another thing i'm gonna steal from you but, but i'll credit you trust me maybe if i can remember um <laughs> i'll be like somebody really cool told me this one time but i'm gonna pretend like it's my shit no it's funny and it's not funny actually but when this happened to me when when i wrote that book and that book got picked up and sold and all of a sudden I was thrust into the limelight at the peril of sounding pretentious. There were a lot of writers that I had been in contact with online that we all did flash fiction and we all did short stories and stuff like that. And man, they got pissed at me just not outright pissed but you could just tell that there was a like a s- solid stream of jealousy going on. Oh, yeah. There were there were writers out there who were humping it, man, who had like on their third novel and they had two more in the drawer and and they still hadn't gotten to that place and here I was, I'd never even attempted to write a novel and on my first first attempt it just blew my career up. So there I lost what I considered to be friends when that happened, man, and that kind of bum me out but at the same time and and this is truly uh how i feel about it man you know i get a lot of people would say wow you got really lucky you got lucky and maybe luck had something to do with it but um tenacity is the party man i mean tenacity through the fucking party and luck just happened to show up i i feel like that yeah i did there's a relative amount of luck there but at the same time i've been putting myself out there for decades so my tenacity and the fact that i did write that book is what got it done. Luck simply just was invited, like I said, to the party. It's all about tenacity and and making yourself accessible. And I can't, I won't apologize for that. So if anybody wanted to get jealous and shitty with me, man, then I clearly saw where, uh, where they stood on our friendship.
0: Yeah. People struggle with their mindset. And a lot of times these haters are super insecure or jealous about their, their own lot. And what lies behind that, you know, on the other side is what happens if you do get success, right? Because success also comes with its own challenges as well.
1: Oh my God, does it? Especially on your first like time out of the box. And I've seen this happen with a lot of other friends of mine who are musicians who just scored big on their first record. And then all of a sudden the pressure and the amount of just stressed that comes along with trying to like do that again or to recapture that lightning in a bottle for the second time and the third time that becomes like living in a pressure cooker man so i mean success in itself is not all it's cracked up to be it's wonderful but at the same time it has its pitfalls and and the thing about the jealousy behind that or or people being curt with you and thinking that you don't deserve it If you look at the other side of it, if you're the guy who, uh, who is successful and then you've got somebody who comes up and says, man, I'm 100% proud of what you've done, man. You, that rocks. Go, go out there and kick some ass. Those are the people that I turn around and uplift at at every chance I get. If there's an opportunity for me to make an introduction, if there's opportunity for me to get somebody else's book, you know, blurbed, why shut that down? Why shut down that, that line to a possible foothold in your own career by being a dickhead?
0: Yeah. 100%. 100%. It's funny that you mentioned that too cuz I had an interesting experience like growing up I was like so back to the music thing I was uh I was always like the talented musician person in my school and I come from a small town in the middle of nowhere and there was a guy that graduated a couple of years before me and he ended up making it pretty big. He's got a record deal with Sub Pop, you know, like and and I remember when I saw him blow up, I was just like at the outset I was that guy who was being like, "Oh, well, so and so was probably just super well connected, blah blah blah." But then I listened to his music, and I was like, "This shit's awesome! I love it! And I'm glad that he got the you know the recognition and the platform to put it out there because because it's just cool." And actually, that that brings me to my next question: when when you're writing, do you turn the music on or the music off?
1: Man, music I use it a little bit differently than most. I have to, I can't write with music. I, I can't, so it's off. That's the the short answer. But it's Absolutely integral to the, to my writing process. I feel like there's every every character has their own soundtrack when I'm writing it. And I know going into a chapter that if I'm going to be writing about Clayton Burroughs, man, I've got to, I've got to spend a good solid hour or so, man, listening to Waylon Jennings and that kind of outlaw country stuff, i women and that kind of thing in order to put myself in, into Clayton's mindset. And then once I've got that, that feeling comes from listening to that style of music, man, I feel like I can write Clayton much better because that is who he is. Or in the exact opposite of that, Dane Kirby in the new book in Hard Cash Valley, he is of a different stock, man. So I have to I listen to a lot of punk rock for that guy because he's younger and he's got more of a different feel than Clayton and I don't want to write him the same as Clayton. And so I would drive around in my Bronco man listening to the Ramones and shit like that in order to like and or New York punk to get myself into the mindset of Dane kirby and then i could i feel like i have a better shot at writing him correctly if i do that so i use music to inform how i'm writing a character or writing a scene but i absolutely don't use it to write i, I can't i have to be 100 percent silence
0: i can appreciate that for me i can only listen to certain kinds of music when i'm working because if it's too instrumentally complex i get interested in what's going on harmonically and if there's lyrics I just start paying attention to the story and the lyrics. So I have to listen to something like, like down tempo or like hip hop beats or something. That's just really almost of, you know, no like harmonic substance really. They just to have some background noise. If I listen to music at all. Because, yeah, I can totally get mentally involved with it.
1: If, if I get stuck, if I'm writing and I feel like what I'm writing is shit. Sometimes I'll just, man, I'll throw in some headphones and just take a walk. I've got a trail system like right next door to where I live, and I'll just take in some music, man, and listen to it. And it re- Almost like it re recharges me to come and sit back down at my desk and, and get, get some work done, and then I feel like I'm, I'm in a better place. So m- music is, like I said, it, it kickstarts me in ways that I need because if I didn't have music around – then I don't think I would be the writer that I am, honestly.
0: Yeah, man. And walking too is such a great thing. I remember back when I used to live in downtown Atlanta, I used to see a writer named Charles McNair walking around town with his uh, recorder. He was on his walks and he was writing his books on his recorder as he walked around talking to himself. And I always thought that that was a really interesting way to, to write. Never been necessarily that kind of guy but walking does seem to help bring out the brain and like kind of refresh it And
1: well man there's a there's a writer I, I admire like highly Christian Kiefer he's fucking incredible man he wrote a book called Animals and then his most recent one is called Phantoms and before I was published, I was reading that guy and I would, I was like following him on Facebook and he would always post all these pictures of him out on hikes. Owen Laufenen is another one. he always show pictures and and they would always talk about how their ideas came to them from all this hiking and outdoor adventuring they would do. So I wrote, I ride a mountain bike and I usually would listen to audio books when I was riding a mountain bike. And I stopped listening to audio books and just took the headphones off and started riding. And man, I, and you're right. I mean, the shit just starts to flow when you have this. I mean, I remember one particular instance where I damn near wrecked because I was like, oh, shit, I've got this great idea for a story, man. I got to stop. And I stopped and, some, and damn near went ass over end just so that I could get on my phone and, and type in the notes. So I wouldn't forget that shit by the time I got back to the truck. So, yeah, I mean, it it, it it's it's a thing. It's a, it's definitely a thing when you get inside your head and you get out there and you're just, you know, you let that juice flow. So I highly recommend
0: that shit. Indeed. So when we were talking before you, you sent me some stuff before we got together today and I thought it was really interesting that you put Pablo Neruda in the conversation that we were having. And so I just wanted to ask, like, what's your connection to that? What's so significant about Neruda?
1: All right. First of all, I've never, I've never been a poetry fan like ever. I never understood like even in college I, I just never I, my, I always looked at it like why are you just tell me the story don't make me interpret your words don't don't, don't give me something i have to figure out So I never really got poetry. I never understood it. And then when I was in the process of writing Hard Cash Valley, a really, really good friend of mine, her name's Janae Day. She's a writer. She also has a podcast called Fear Itself that deals with anxiety and that kind of thing. She sent me a Neruda sonnet from his 100 sonnets that he wrote for his wife. Out of the blue, she just wrote, she sent me this thing because she's like, I think you'll you'll dig this. And I was captivated Daniel it was like holy shit it's like something clicked in my brain and so i started digging a little bit deeper eventually just man i couldn't get enough of it and that broke into me looking at modern poets like denusha lamaris and and others and it was almost like it's it's like when your tastes change you know if like you don't eat you fucking hate onions your whole life man and so you stop eating them and then when you're 35, somebody slips some onions onto your shit, and you eat it, and you're like, oh, my God, this this makes sense. This fucking shit is great. That's what, what poetry was. And that door that got kicked open was by Pablo Neruda. And, in fact, that sonnet ended up making its way into the book, changed the entire tone of what I was writing, and informed my decision-making process on how that plot was going to roll out. And now I'm a fan for life.
0: So I – Admittedly, have not read much Neruda myself, but in in prep for our chat today, I did go and read a poem and it was about a soldier. It was really, I can see why you dig him. It was really visceral and really evocative and just the things that were going on with the language were so intense. It wasn't the kind of poetry that holds back. It was really just all in and really present. And I think that's one of the cool things that I felt from the stuff of yours that I've read Is that it's really pushing it forward and really just putting it all out there. And I think that's really what makes something impactful, right? Is that it really connects. And so there's that energy into it. When
1: you drop something on the page, man, that is 100% your guts it's it, whatever your medium is, whether it be, you know, fiction, nonfiction, prose, poetry, when it when it's sitting there and it is a piece of you that you just dropped and you're scared for people to read it because they're going to see you for who you are. You're on to some shit right there. And Naruta is exactly that. That's how he, he writes, man. He takes chunks of himself and throws it on the page. And his use of language, like you said, man, is so upfront. And unabashedly who he is and how he feels and he makes no apologies for it. And I think that if you can tap into that, man, your writing will escalate in ways that you didn't even think were possible. And I think that's what poetry is. And then that, like I said, man, he kicked me into gear. So now I try to consume as much of it as I can. Now there's, there's some shitty poets out there, man. And I'll be the first one to tell you that like even people talk about Shakespeare. I'm not a fan of Shakespeare. I, I think that N- Neruda was destroying like what exactly love means, whereas you know Shakespeare was not. You know, <laughs> and and a lot of people say, "What? That's blasphemy, man!" But it, I guess it's all about taste.
0: Yeah, I think it's all about taste, and it's about frame of reference. And I think that given the world that we live in, where everything is really. A lot of times can be taken with a grim dose of starkness and grittiness, you know, visceral, viscerally written things that don't really bother with so much of the structure and the form. I don't want to evoke too much of the concept of postmodernism or absurdism, but, you know, we get into these conversations, we read these things, and I think it takes a lot of power in writing to disrupt. And I think that that's what's cool about stuff like that.
1: Yeah, most definitely. When we were talking earlier before we started doing this, um, when we were going back and forth with our, with email, getting prepping up for this, you said Do you have a tendency to, to get dark and lean toward the morose. And I also have that. I have a tendency to lean toward the melancholy and the dark and the tragic and that type thing. And, and I'm of the school of Cormac McCarthy, man, you know, where there are no happy endings and everybody is to the core, you know, not necessarily evil or good, but disruptive. And all of a sudden, like, like hope and empathy and all the other things that i had been lacking showed up by consuming all this poetry and it flushed out pieces of me that i didn't know existed and that's that's what i mean by informing like how, how i wrote that last book was all of a sudden that book was not a crime novel to me it's a love story and it's clear as day you know it's it's a tragic love story but it's a love story nonetheless and i don't feel like i would have been able to do that if i hadn't been introduced to that sort of writing and also believing like science man and and my buddy sending me that out of the blue for no reason knowing full well that i'm not a fan of poetry at all and opening that door for me i was like man this was supposed to happen so That's awesome. You got to keep your eyes open for for that
0: kind of shit. Totally. Yeah, I didn't want to jump the shark and mention Cormac McCarthy, because I'm sure you probably get that from time to time. But um, yeah, I really like how you mentioned that there are no happy endings. I think that's one of the things that I like about his work. And that's one of the things I like about a lot of more modern stuff is that writers are more willing to leave an open end at the end of a novel or a short story. And especially with, like, you mentioned flash fiction. I think that's probably what I, I've read a lot of it. And a lot of people, I think, err when they try to wrap things up. And I think that the nature of a 500, 700-word story is that you should leave the reader with more questions than answers because absolutely, it's, it's like an appetizer. You don't want to f- spoil the dinner, you know.
1: There was a story I wrote called "Dancing in the Dark." I was involved in a. Uh, everything comes back to Springsteen with me, man. But, like, some some writers were putting together Joe Clifford and 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 some other writers were putting together an anthology of Bruce Springsteen song title related stories, and so I ended up writing a few. And the one that got published was called "Wreck on the Highway," and it, and and I was I love that story, but there was another one that I had written called. Dancing in the Dark, which I think, and it's still out there. If anybody's interested to go online and find it, just type in Brian Panowicz and Dancing in the Dark and it'll pop up. But um it's hands down, I think, one of the best things I've ever done. And the comments that were all left was, what happens next? <laughs> what What is going on? You know, I leave everybody completely 100% breathless at the end. And I think that's the point of those kind of stories, man, is that you want to do that. You want to bring that out. With novels, it's very rare that I'll read a book that has the the perfect ending. I've, I've read it twice. No Country for Old Men is a perfect ending. It's the ending is and the title of the book. It just it is perfect. There's no other way to have ended that novel for me. I don't think that happens at all. For the most part, when you're finished writing a book, it was either so fucking good that you're now left empty because you don't know how to move to, to the next novel or whatever, or to get your mindset, you want more of that. So that, that ending leaves you desperate, you know, or on the other hand, you're so invested in a novel and then they do wrap it up and sum it up with a bow. And then you're like, what the fuck? That's not what I wanted. And so the idea of, the perfect ending in a novel is is a very rare thing. Um, Fourth of July Creek by Henderson Smith or Smith Henderson rather is another. There's no other way he could have ended that novel. It's perfect. So I aim for that, but at the same time, I don't think I'll ever get it right. You know, <laughs> I don't think I'll ever get it right, but I'm gonna keep trying, Daniel. I'm gonna keep trying.
0: You got a lot on your plate, man. You are. You've been talking about your your next your your current novel, Hard Cash Valley. You've got some stuff cooking up and food pun intended you're also launching a hot sauce and a podcast tell me a little bit more about these things that you got going on man because it sounds like the kind of stuff that i definitely want to check out
1: all right well uh, of course there's a new novel in the works that uh i'm currently working on it's tentatively called when the wolves and it does my books are not a series. So much as they are interconnected by the landscape, like a Faulkner thing, I have my own county that I created in North Georgia and all these characters intersect. And some people don't like it when I bring up Stan Lee, but I modeled it after that universe long before the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Existed, but you could, it was great. Or like Elmore Leonard did the same thing. Might have been Detroit, but it was Elmore Leonard's Detroit and you'd see these characters anyway. So there's the new novel that I'm working on now that, uh, is hopefully going to be out in 2022. In the meantime, I've got a book of short stories that I'm going to be working with working title farm. It's a publisher out of Boone, North Carolina. I really. I miss the short stories, man. I miss the books of collections of short stories. When we lost William Gay, I think we lost the last great um, short story writer that sold as well as the novelists. George Singleton is still out there doing it. And Ron Rash does it as well. But no, no, I don't think anybody did it as well as Gay. And I've always wanted to I've always felt like my strength was in short stories and so I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to see that happen. So there's a short story collection that'll be coming out this year from Work Title Farm. And then, um, as far as the podcast thing over, over, this year's been f- fucked up. No, I don't need to tell you that, man. Everybody knows that. And there has been a lot of unrest and, um, I found myself, my computer sucking in the doom. And, and just seeing it unfold and seeing all that, all the bitterness and hatred go on between this divisive country. And so I, uh, I made a couple of videos on Facebook, on my writer's page, just not necessarily to change anybody's mind because you can't change anybody's mind about anything. That's a fucking moot point. But I, if just to change the perspective a little bit, as if it happened to me, I, t- I took Breonna Taylor, for example, and what happened to her. And I told the story. With no pretext in the beginning, as if it was happened to me, as if it had happened in in my life, and it got some major major feedback from people who who said, "Brian, you should do this more often." So I I had I did a couple of them, and then um it turned into something where I had so many people asking me to do it, but I don't. Necessarily want to do videos on Facebook. So I figured I would turn it into a, a different medium and start this podcast. So waxing chaotic will be a, a thing that I'm going to start up. I'm going to start up in February. And I think at first I, I might have a couple of people on to talk about it's not going to be a writer's thing. I don't want to do that necessarily. I mean, I'm not saying I won't talk to writers, but I, I want to talk to people who are trying in some way to make the world a better place in their small bubble of whatever they're involved in and shine a light on that so that we've got some kind of, I don't know, hopeful thing coming out of this shitty year. I want to, I, and, and, and man, I have a tendency to, to be funny sometimes, man. So we'll see how that that works. (laughs) I mean, I was conceived under a -a tilt-a-wheel, correct? So how can you not use that to your advantage? And a hot sauce. (laughs) Okay. This is great. This is a great story, man. First of all, I'm a hot sauce fanatic and and I don't try to go for, to, to try to find the hottest shit ever. I just, I want the perfect hot sauce. I'm always on the lookout for that shit. And it started with truff, which is a hot sauce that costs like 20 bucks a bottle. It's a black truffle infused hot sauce that Oprah made famous. And I hesitated on buying this shit because it's 20 bucks for like five ounces of hot sauce. And you know, that's just not for me, but I ended up getting some man. And I was like, this is pretty good shit, but it's 20 bucks. And I, I think if you're making something and trying to like highbrow it like that, man, I, I just, I, I kind of look down on that kind of thing. I know that this only costs you like, like a dollar and a half to make, but you're going to sell it for 20 bucks. And I like to tear people down like that when they're, I don't know, I guess, trying to make something bigger than it is. You're paying for the packaging and not the product. So anyways, th- th- that's where it started. And then I'm a big fan of the Killers. You know that band? During this whole pandemic, man, there's a jerky company out of Las Vegas, Nevada, that was ha- having trouble staying open because of the pandemic. They were, gonna, they were going to go under. So the Killers got involved with them, and they put out a limited edition Killers hot sauce collection in conjunction for these people to keep their business alive. Nice. Yeah, man. Fuck. Yeah. It's nice. That's what you're supposed to do, man. That's how, and that, you know, as somebody in, of stature in a business like theirs reaching down and helping out your people is exactly what you're supposed to do. So they, they get together with them and they made this limited thing. knowing full well that putting their name on it was going to you know, push it out the door and it saved that business. And so I thought that is how it should be done. And so I got together with my, with my partner in crime, Kate Moss up there in, in Atlanta with you. We were like, what can we do to make this happen? So we had this idea of, well, we're from Georgia and pecans are a big deal or pecans, however you want to say it. If you're up north, man, it's a fucking pecan here in Georgia, but, um, we came up with this idea of doing a pecan oil infused hot sauce, putting it in the same highbrow marketing that truff did, but we're going to sell it at a price that's reasonable and normal for for the layman's. And we're going to use a company there in Atlanta that is struggling in order to do it. And then we're going to market it as something that comes out of McFalls County, which is where my books are set. So my readership will be attracted to it and, that way we create some community, we help some people out, and then I have the lifelong dream of having a, a hot sauce out there that I created. Yeah, so that's that's pretty cool. There's there's some shit we need to work out, and Kate is 100% in charge of the recipe, and she's amazing. So she's doing that, and we're working together, and we're hoping to have that ready to rock and roll by the end of this year too.
0: That's amazing.
1: And that will also be for sale on my website, and then we're going to set up a uh, website. We'll just see, man. We'll kick it off and see what happens.
0: And I should mention that all of Brian's links will be here in the show notes on this episode, but you mentioned jerky and I just wanted to give a shout out to my friend Jason, who he has a jerky business. He's based out of Atlanta and he's doing some really cool things with flavors and they're called JJ's Jerky. And I'll put a link in the show notes to that as well, because his Chipotle pineapple jerky is really good.
1: Holy shit, that sounds good, man!
0: It, it really is. Like it, it's it, it blows anything you could buy over the counter just out of the water. It, it's like above and beyond the quality, the freshness, the the flavor complexity. It's all really there, and it's just really nice.
1: Thanks, Danny. You just made me spend way too much money today because that's exactly what I'm gonna do when we're done here. <laughs> Let's go buy a shitload of that because it sounds fantastic.
0: I will give you the link to it. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. So final two questions. Number one, this has been really great and I appreciate you being here. Before we wrap up, where can people find you online? How can people connect with you?
1: Other than the regular social media platforms, I'm on Facebook. If you uh, just Type my name in, I'm I'm there. I would recommend that you look for Brian Panowich, the writer, as opposed to Brian Panowich, the regular dude. And you can tell the difference between the two, because if you just want to like hear about my kids and shit, then that's fine. But if you want to keep up with me as a writer, then Brian Panowich writer on Facebook is a good way to do it. I'm on Instagram at bpanowich. Instagram's weird, man. I feel like I'm too old for that shit, but I I do it anyway at the request of my publisher. Twitter I stay away from. I think it's a fucking cesspool, uh, so you can't find me there. But you can also find me at uh, net. And the reason why it's not .com is because when I forgot to renew the uh, the domain name, so a Japanese company stole it and tried to sell it back to me for $14,000. And I was like, holy shit, nope. So it's net And right now, if you go to it, you're going to see a lot of stuff about Hard Cash Valley and the new book, um, that's out currently. The one that came out this past year, but within the next couple of weeks, it's going to flip around, and you're going to see a lot of things on there. I'm doing some McFall's County T-shirts and lots of swag and and different things, and it's there'll be connections to my new podcast and connections to this hot sauce thing that we're doing. So, if there's anybody out there, and this all goes back to how we started this conversation, if there's anybody out there that's writing and has a question or or wants to talk about the process or or what to do or or how to get involved in this industry, man, I am wide open for questions like that. I always will be. I feel like it's the way to keep myself grounded. You can email me right out of that bpanowish at yahoo.com, man, and I'll shoot the shit with anybody who wants to talk about it.
0: Awesome. Um, We talked a lot before the conversation about community, and obviously you and I are involved with Broadleaf Writers Association here in Georgia and, you know, in Atlanta. Could you talk a little bit more about community in general and what kind of impact that's had on you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Broadleaf Writers Association, which was the branch out of Zach Steele, he's a, another writer in Atlanta. He got me involved in, he, as he got you involved in, and it's it's been a lot of fun. But I, I think that something that is very important about the community is that. Associations like, and I'll just leave it in Georgia's, associations like Broadleaf or like the Georgia Writers Association and these groups, they need to overlap. I think that all of them should be out supporting each other. And I think that sometimes if you're involved in one group, then that's where all of your focus and energy goes. And in, if if we were actually to combine forces and everybody was overlapping and everybody was attending each other's events, then we have a like a massive community as opposed to these small little tribes. You know, we're, we're all in the same tribe, so we might as well overlap and do that. And a lot of good can come from that. And a good example of that is during this runoff election that was going on here recently in Georgia, when the whole world was looking at Georgia, an author in Atlanta, Colleen Oakley, she's amazing. She put together an an idea where we would get a lot of writers from Georgia to speak our mind about this runoff election. And we made a video of each of us reading a section of a letter she composed on behalf of John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. And, man, we we posted that video in a few places, and it got a lot of traction, man. And I honestly do believe that we made an impact as far as voter turnout for the people that are readers you know of us and so that kind of thing is powerful daniel i mean it's really fucking powerful and if there was more of that going on then i think that i I think it'd just be a beautiful thing and like i said broadleaf is a wonderful way to get involved in in a community if you're a writer in georgia and but so is the georgia writers association so is uh what's going on at dahlonega these festivals and i think that if all of them Overlapped and, like I said, man, got involved with each other's organizations as far as just pushing everybody who's involved in their collection of members toward other organizations. Then you have this massive amount of people at all times for all these organizations, and it just opens a lot more doors for everybody involved. I think that community is a fo- wonderful thing, but I don't think that you should just stick to one. I think that you should branch out, and all of us, and and as board members for for Broadleaf, it's our responsibility to make sure that the people who are involved in Broadleaf and who pay to be members of Broadleaf also get to experience all these other things that we should be letting them know about.
0: So. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you. I think that community and network and connection is so important. I definitely wouldn't be, you know, where I'm at with, you know, having this podcast and having this business without other people, without connection and without the communities here in Atlanta and around Georgia. It's I would absolutely underline everything you just said, because it's just really important. Awesome. Final question. Midnight truck stop readings. Fact or fiction? Fact. All right. I don't think we should reveal what that is on the podcast. We'll have to have you back again to talk more about that. Leave people with a desire to know more. This has been a really fantastic conversation, Brian. Thank you so much. Man,
1: brother, you're welcome, man. Anytime. This was fun. It's always, it's always fun to talk to somebody, man, who has uh, got good questions. Great stuff and lots of teeth. And um, I appreciate you having me here, man. It's been a, It's been a blast. I hope I get to do it again.
0: Thanks for listening to Ritual. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone that you think would love it. Special thanks to our producer, Emily Milling, and her team at The Ultimate Creative, and our amazing business manager, Erica McCauley. I recorded the intro music for this podcast with Spencer Garn at Diamond Street Studios here in Atlanta. Until next time, I'm Daniel Lamb, And just remember everything that you need to be creative is right here with you within you in this moment